morning. Today we're going to be answering the question of what is the difference exactly between an ideal Christian wife and an ideal concubine. If you've seen last week's lesson, you remember that I said that a lot of these Christian books uh, about wifery, you can't really tell the difference if they're talking about a wife or a concubine, it seems like. So we're going to be answering that question today. I am live streaming to YouTube and also Sermon Audio. These uh, YouTube studies, if you're watching it later after the fact, these YouTube studies are live on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock a.m. Mountain Time. And also there are more uh, Bible studies that I do on Final Fight Bible Radio on Fridays at 9 o'clock a.m. and 9 o'clock p.m. Mountain Time. And then also there's a live broadcast that I do on Final Fight on Fridays at 10 o'clock a.m. Mountain Time. So be sure to tune into that. Uh, subscribe to this YouTube YouTube channel, share these lessons with your friends and family. If you want more in-depth Bible uh, teaching material, there, I've published four books that are available through Final Fight, Amazon, and eBooks, and uh, Google eBooks. And uh, thank you for those of you that support Final Fight Bible Radio and this uh, bi Bible teaching and preaching uh, through YouTube and Sermon Audio. I appreciate it. I really do. All right. So uh, last week. We began a series, I began a series of lessons called the Christian Concubine. And to be clear, <clears throat> let me repeat that I don't believe that Christians should have concubines. That's not what these series are, is about. <laughs> and I don't believe that a wife should be treated like a concubine. And I don't believe that a wife should allow herself to be treated like a concubine. Now, all, already right there, we've gotten... Uh, a little bit controversial with that third point, but don't. Uh, but just so you know, don't think that I'm advocating for Christian concubinage or anything like that. Uh, another thing I want to mention at the start of this series is that the problems with some of the teachings uh, regarding the ideal Christian wife uh, are subtle, I think. And, and you might be thinking, well, what's really the problem with these Christian books on being a good Christian wife? I've read these books. They're great books, blah, blah, blah. What's so wrong with it? Well, the problems that I'm going to be getting into, they are pretty subtle, and I'll explain more as I go, but sometimes the words that are being said or published seem correct, they sound good, but I, in my opinion, I believe that there's a mentality that's being communicated through a lot of these sermons, a lot of these books that is incorrect. And so trying to teach this subject without saying the wrong thing or without coming across the wrong way is going to be, really be like threading the needle. You know, it's going to be like that operation game, you know, where you have to carefully pull out the bones without hitting the buzzer, right? Uh, for me, teaching this series of lessons is going to be trying to get that wishbone out without getting buzzed. The wishbone's the worst, all right? So bear with me. Uh, and before you label me a heretic for some of the things that I'm going to say, Please hear me out first, okay? Also, by the way, seeing as this subject is an adult subject pertaining to marriage, uh, it is an adult subject pertaining to adults, so this series is not necessarily meant or designed to be necessarily suitable for children. I'll try to be discreet, but at the same time, I'm not going to tiptoe around the sex subject. Uh, this series is not about sex, nor is it meant to focus on sex, but the subject will come up from time to time, so just so you know. Uh, finally, these lessons are not directed just at women or just at men. There's going to be plenty in these lessons for everybody that I think we can all learn some things from. And my goal in these lessons is to ask some of the hard questions, expose some of these wrong mentalities, and also hopefully help husbands and wives in their marital relationship. 
All right, so as I began to explain last time, much of the teaching within conservative Christian circles regarding the ideal Christian wife, in my opinion, is hardly distinguishable from the definition or the description of a concubine, even to the extent of the teachings regarding suffering and abuse that a woman is supposed to endure at the hands of a cruel husband and the way these things are taught. And as I've spent time over the last several months reading these books written to Christian wives, um, I sometimes can't help but wonder, am I reading about the relationship between a husband and a wife, or am I reading about the relationship between a master and a female slave? Um, in some of the popular conservative Christian books that teach women how to be good wives, you could pretty much chain, exchange the word wife for concubine, and you wouldn't really affect the thesis of the book. So within conservative Christian circles, it's generally taught that the ideal Christian wife is a woman who helps, obeys, serves, and satisfies. But then again, how is that any different from the ideal concubine? Is not the job of, or the description, or the, uh, uh, the ideal Christian concubine described as a woman who helps, obeys, serves, and satisfies? So what's the difference? How would we differentiate these two? All right. And so last week I asked the honest question, what is the difference between a wife and a concubine? And no doubt there is a difference. There must be a difference. But what is that difference? Now, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this and contemplating this. And I personally think it really boils down to one key word or one key concept primarily. And a lot of you have put out uh, different uh, suggestions as to what that might be. And there's been a lot of good uh, ideas put forward, and I'm going to give you my thought today, and a lot of the things that some of you have mentioned are kind of offshoots of the word that I have in my mind anyway, so it all kind of fits together, but anyway, before I get into that, I wanted to talk a little bit about what a concubine is, all right, so what is a concubine? Well, first off, I want to point out that there is a spectrum when it comes to concubines, and the thing is, what I mean by that is a concubine varies from culture to culture depending on the historical, regional, and social context. All right, so there's the definition of a concubine or the description of a concubine can actually vary in a significant way. So I put it as a spectrum here, okay? So the Latin word itself, though, comes from the word cum, cum cubare, okay, which uh, basically means uh, to lie with, to lie together, to cohabit. All right, and uh, com, the Latin word com, means together or with, and cubare means to lie down. Uh, so that's where the, the word itself, the etymology of the word comes from. So a concubine, in, in general, is a woman whose relationship to a man has a lot of close similarities to that of a wife, in that the concubine is provided for by her husband, and even in the Bible, in the uh, story of uh, Judges, where the uh, Levite has his concubine and she runs away and, and that, all that happens with uh, the Gibeonites and all those things, uh, even in that passage, that concubine is referred, to the referred as the man's wife. And we'll look at that probably down the road in a different lesson. So even uh, as far as the Bible is concerned, there's a lot of similarities between a concubine and a wife. Okay, So a concubine is someone who's provided for by the husband. A concubine is protected by the husband. Uh, the concubine has sexual intimacy with the husband, and the concubine can also have children by the husband. And historically, the things that 
technically made a concubine distinct from a wife, as far as history is concerned and how this worked, is that often her children, the concubine's children, <clears throat> had no legal right to the inheritance. Whereas the wife, her children, has the legal right to the inheritance, okay? So this wasn't always the case. Sometimes a concubine's children could get in on an inheritance. But the other thing is that the concubine generally had no rights in the marital relationship. No rights in the marital relationship. You might say that the, that the concubine's sole purpose in life was to please her man. As offensive as concubinage is to us Americans in the New Testament, church age, 21st century, there were actually a variety of, re variety of reasons why cultures accepted the practice of concubinage, or at least kind of turned a blind eye to it. And there's actually a lot of practical reasons why cultures throughout history did this. Number one, if you had a situation where your wife was infertile or not able to bear children, you couldn't just go to the doctor and have him fix that. No, if the wife was infertile in ancient cultures, this was a huge problem that created major complications in regards to inheritances, especially issues pertaining to land ownership. For example, let's say that you lived in the old, uh, you know, 800 years ago or five or 3,000, no, 2,000 years ago, let's say whatever. Let's say you had only daughters, okay? And after you died, your land and property went to your daughters, but then let's say they get married. So they get married to some other guy. Does all of their property now belong to their husband and his family? Okay. So these kind of things were a dilemma, and God actually instructed Moses on this very issue in Numbers chapter 36. But other cultures were left to figure these things out for themselves. But it was a legitimate problem. And, <clears throat> and so some of these cultures fixed this dilemma by allowing men to have concubines whereby they could have sons to obtain the inheritance. So if the wife can't have children, well, you get a concubine and then you can have a ch child with her. Problem solved, <laughs> right? Number two, another reason historically why culture is allowed for concubinage is, let's say you are a ruler and you needed to secure the future of your family's dynasty. If you were a king or if you were a ruler and had no heir, your kingdom would end up being in jeopardy. And ideally, you could have an heir via your wife, but what if she couldn't bear children? Or what if she was only producing daughters? Or even if you did have a son, there's always the possibility that he could die before he ends up taking the throne. So if you only have one son, you're still kind of at risk. There's a big liability that that kid could die before he takes the throne. Or what if he takes the throne and then dies before he has a child? You know, having at least two sons would be ideal, so that way if your firstborn took the throne and then he died, the secondborn of your, your lineage could still take the throne and maintain the kingdom. And so you might easily dismiss these problems as a 21st century American, but these were legitimate concerns of great practical importance in centuries past. And so one way uh, to solve this problem was for kings to have multiple wives or concubines. And I'm not condoning this. I'm not saying that we should go back to the old paths, okay? I'm not condoning it, but if you give it some thought, you can appreciate the dilemma that people were in back in those days. Another reason would be if you were in love with a particular woman, let's say, but the culture within your society prevented you from being married to her, that could be a problem. 
So, like, for example, in some societies, it was outrageous for a person of nobility to marry a poor woman in a lower social class. All right, now we have a lot of equality in America, but back in the older days, that wasn't the case. And you say, well, I don't care. I just love her, and I'm going to marry her anyway. Okay, well, that's nice, and you can have your romantic notions of equality, and I would even agree that social class shouldn't matter. But the cold reality of most of history is, is, that, uh, is that people have not been regarded as equals, and if a nobleman married a poor woman, he would end up becoming shunned from society, which could jeopardize the, the stability and sustainability of his wealth, and could also jeopardize his safety and her safety within that society. And so the same social dilemma often applied in terms of race, you know, a white person not allowed to marry a black person, or religion, you know, if this person has this religion and this person has this religion, you're not allowed to marry that woman. Or nationality, if you're uh, part of Italy and this person's part of Greece, you're not allowed to marry. You know, there's all these kind of social issues back in the day that prevented people uh, from being married. So one way around this dilemma, if, you, if these two people loved each other, one way around this was to classify the woman that you love as a concubine. As long as she's a concubine and not a wife, well, then society would, would accept your relationship. If you said, she's my wife, you could end up becoming rejected by society. But if you said, oh, no, she's my concubine, then everybody says, oh, okay, well, that's fine. <laughs> you know, so that's one way they get around that. You say, that's stupid. Y yes, it is. But regardless of what you or I think about it, that's the way it was for thousands of years. And so one way they get around that was with concubinage. So just remember that as an American, you have to be careful about projecting your experience of the world onto everybody else, past and present. As Americans, we live in a very, very exceptional society at a very exceptional time, right? On the timeline, basically. And we live in an, in an exceptional society in an exceptional situation that most people in history could only dream of, okay? They couldn't even imagine a society with freedom and the ability to do all these things that we get to do as Americans. So be careful about just projecting your experience onto everybody else. That can cut, that can, that's kind of a very arrogant way to look at history. All right, and then the other, another way uh, or practical reason for concubinage in the old days was it was a way of securing peace between nations. If you wanted to guarantee that your neighbor nation didn't come and attack you, one way you could do that was by giving him one of your daughters in marriage to that other king, right? And this was beneficial for both kingdoms because, you know, you're not going to attack him because he has your daughter, and he's not going to attack you, hopefully, because you're his father-in-law, all right? So, however, the scenario comes up, well, what if you offered your daughter, but that king already had a wife? Are you both just out of luck? <laughs> or what if you offered your daughter, but because of ethnic or race or religious differences, prohibited, uh, may have prohibited the king from marrying your daughter? You know, what if you had a situation like that? Well, that's where the concubine loophole would often come in. The king could take her as a concubine, even if he already had a wife, or even if your nationalities were different. He says, well, because we're two different nationalities, I can't have her as my wife because of the way my society is structured, but I can have her as a concubine. All right, well, that's fine. Okay, let's do that. And then both kingdoms could sign the peace deal. 
And then there was obviously other less appropriate reasons for having concubines, such as you conquer another nation and you take their women as your slaves, or you don't want the responsibilities of marriage, and so you still, but you still want the benefits of marriage, and so you get a concubine. And uh, this was usually called concubinage in the past, but today they call it cohabitation. <laughs> and then uh, another reason is, well, maybe you just simply wanted a lot of women, not just one, and so you purchase multiple women. You know, there's all kinds of reasons for it. But concubinage is something that's been practiced for virtually all of recorded human history. And any civilization you look at in the past practiced concubinage. All right. And as far as the biblical uh, record of history goes, Cain's great, 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 great grandson, Lamech, 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 whatever, he's the first person in the Bible who is said to have uh, more than one wife. Okay. And by the time you get to Genesis 6, before the flood, you have the angel kings who are taking them wives of all which they chose, indicating that those angel kings were accumulating wives to themselves. It wasn't that they just had one wife. They were taking multiple women to themselves. And if the angels were doing it, the kings were doing it, then no doubt sinful people at that time would follow their example. And since the Bible says that corruption and violence are the words used to describe society during that time period, Genesis 6:11, you can be certain that because there's corruption and violence, you can be certain that bondage, slavery, and abuse of women was a rampant thing in the days prior to the flood. So in other words, you could say that concubinage began before the flood. You say, when did it start? Well, it started before the flood for sure. And because of that, concubinage is associated with a fallen civilization. Adam didn't have concubines in the Garden of Eden. There was no Lilith, and Eve was the next, next one in line. It's not like he was married to Lilith and Eve or something like that. You don't have that in God's original design. And so concubinage is not consistent with God's original design. All right, Concubinage is something that's been practiced for virtually all of recorded human history, and make no mistake, it is still practiced in many parts of the world today. But as I said, it needs to be perceived in terms of a spectrum rather than, a, than one specific definition. On one end of the spectrum, you could say that child trafficking is a form, uh, a modern form of concubinage. But that's an extreme instance of slavery and abuse and was really not always the case for all concubines throughout all history. Uh, some concubines, on the other end of the spectrum, were actually treated very well. And they could hardly be differentiated from a wife. And then, of course, there are instances of everything in between. A concubine being treated really well, can't really tell her from a wife, and then you have extreme abuse, extreme slavery, but then there's all this, you know, like I said, it's a spectrum. You can't just define it to one particular thing. So, as far as this series is concerned, most Christian wives who find themselves being treated more like a concubine are probably going to be on this lighter side of the spectrum, honestly. <laughs> you might be over here somewhere. I, I don't think there's going to be a lot of this, but you're probably going to be more on this side of the spectrum with this series that I'm talking about. But what I want to get across in these lessons is that a Christian wife should not be anywhere on this spectrum, okay? She shouldn't be on the spectrum of a goddess either, okay, which is the pendulum swing of the liberal feminists, you know, they, they don't like women uh, being treated like concubines, 
understandably so. And they'd say, well, as a woman, you know, women are on this, this uh, spectrum. And so we don't like that. And so they pendulum swing and react. And now they want to be treated like a goddess. Okay, well, that's equally wrong. Um, a, a Christian woman should simply be in the place or position that God intends her to be. And that is that of a wife, not a concubine, not a goddess, a wife. That's what God designed, okay? So, again, what is the difference between the ideal Christian wife and an ideal concubine? Of course, there's a huge difference between the ideal Christian wife and a concubine on this low end of the spectrum, if you will. Uh, but I'm not... But I'm talking about ideal concubines. I'm talking about, uh, I'm talking about w good women who help, obey, serve, and satisfy. All right? Um, what is the difference between the ideal Christian wife and ideal concubine? Because practically speaking, there seems to be little difference. And as I've said, most of these Christian books on Christian wifery, it's hard to tell if you're reading about an ideal Christian concubine or an ideal wife. Um, so what's the problem? All right? So what... Again, what makes the ideal Christian wife different from the ideal Christian concubine? And like I said, I've pondered this question for months, and there's a few different words that maybe could fit, but there is one word in particular that keeps standing out above all the others. And so when it comes to the concubine marital relationship, regardless of wherever it is on the spectrum, in the concubine marital relationship, there is no we in terms of the relationship, it's only him that matters. For the concubine, there is no me. There is no me for the concubine. She does not get to be herself. She does not get to express herself. Her opinion really is devalued, if not completely irrelevant. She exists solely for the benefit of the man whom she belongs to. And what she thinks isn't important because she's a concubine. And what she wants is inconsequential, because she's a concubine. If a concubine doesn't like something a man is doing, well, that's just too bad for her. A concubine isn't allowed to speak out against mistreatment. Are you kidding? A concubine is just supposed to shut her mouth and be thankful, because it could be worse. It could be worse. A concubine has no right to demand that she be treated better, because a concubine has no rights. And the man knows it and acts in accordance with that truth. The man agrees with that as well. She has no rights, so that's how he acts. His actions are, are a reflection of his mentality, his perception of her. He knows that her purpose in life is to please him and do what he says. That's his his worldview uh, regarding her. And because she's a concubine, uh, or I mean, uh, he, he knows that her purpose in life is to please him and do what, she sa do what he says, because she's a concubine and that's what concubines do. And that's what concubines are for. So he bosses her around. She might be told to pay the bills, but she doesn't get equal access to the money. Uh, he can buy what he wants when he wants, but she doesn't get that luxury. She only gets what the husband gives her, and he gets pissed if the house isn't exactly how he likes it. He gets pissed if the dinner isn't uh, ready right when he comes through the door, and he gets angry if she doesn't take her clothes off anytime he wants her to. Now, why is he like that? Is it because he's a jerk? 
Well, maybe, but let's expand our thinking just a little bit. A man would treat his concubine like that because that's all a concubine is for. You could actually argue that the man is not doing anything wrong and is perfectly within his right to behave that way towards her because all she is is a concubine and literally a concubine's purpose in life is to please her man all the time. That is what she's there for. That's why he bought her. That's what he bought her for. It doesn't do a concubine any good uh, to complain about being a concubine. That's who she is, and that's all she'll ever be. So what advice could you give a concubine other than, well, you might as well get used to it. Well, you might as well learn to find happiness in your situation. Well, you're not going to change your master, so you might as well adapt to him. Your opinion doesn't matter in this relationship, so you might as well keep your mouth shut and save yourself the added trouble. Or you might say, you know, since you don't have a voice, you might as well stop thinking. Because thinking without an outlet, without, or, uh, you know, having opinions without a voice is going to drive you crazy. So the best thing for you to do is to reprogram yourself to be the concubine that he wants you to be. And the more you program yourself to conform to what he wants, the better he will treat you and the happier you'll be. <laughs> now, ladies, don't be angry at me because I'm not condoning this at all. I'm talking about a concubine in a concubine marital relationship. You are not a concubine. But let me ask you this. Doesn't that advice sound familiar? <laughs> Everything that I just said? It should sound familiar because this is pretty much the counsel that's being given to women in these conservative, fundamentalist, KJV, Bible-believing books on Christian wifery. It sounds to me more like the counsel that you would give to a concubine. Not, not what you give to a wife, but if you were... If you had a concubine that was upset with her situation, well, yeah, that, that would be the type of counsel I would expect you to give a concubine. <laughs> but, well, if you don't believe me, take a look at some of these books and some of, the, some of the things that are spoken in these books on Christian wifery. Here we go. If you want to keep your man and the father of your children, you are going to have to forget your rights as a wife and forget his Christian obligation to your vows. Amen, sister. How about this one? Uh, notice the wording in this statement. <clears throat> a biblical woman should be constantly alert to the fact that most false philosophies will appeal to her emotions and her sense of personal rights. Now, I didn't put the quotation marks on personal rights. That's how it's written in the book. Personal rights are in quotation marks indicating that you don't actually have any personal rights, you just think you do. So her sense of personal rights, her desire for autonomy, and her sin nature weaknesses. All right, how about this one? God stands with you when you stand by your man, but you will stand alone if you insist on standing by your rights. 
Always remember that the day you stop smiling is the day you stop you, 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 okay? It's never, the man is never at fault because he's the authority. He's, you know, God's appointed authority. So he's never wrong. It's always about you and what you're doing wrong and what you need to fix. And it's always your fault. Even if you're being abused, well, you should have acted differently to prevent that abuse. So God stands with you when you stand by your man, but you will stand alone if you insist on standing by your rights. <laughs> Always remember that the day you stop smiling is the day you stop trying to make your marriage heavenly, and it is the first day leading to your divorce proceedings. All right, how about this one? Is it God's will for your husband to adapt to you, or is it God's will for you to adapt to him? Well, here's a novel thought. Oh. Here's a novel thought. Why can't you both just adapt to each other? <laughs> How about this one? Don't say things like this. Don't say, are you sure we should do that? Don't say things like, wouldn't this be better? Don't say that, wife. Don't say that. Trust your husband. Trust the Lord who designated your husband to lead you. <clears throat> because obviously, if you ask him, are you sure we should do that? You're not trusting your husband, and you're not trusting the Lord. All right? If you want your husband to be your head, then let him be and do what he wants to do. Stop arguing with him and telling him what to do, or, or even questioning him. You get that? But learn to have a meek and quiet spirit <clears throat> who trusts her husband enough to follow where he leads and the decisions he makes. Don't ask questions. You're not allowed to ask questions. That's rebellion. No questioning. I'm sure glad my wife questions me sometimes because some of my ideas are stupid. <laughs> and that's just being honest. I mean, if you think that every idea that you always have is always just amazing, well, you should probably, you're probably full of yourself and your ego is way too big. All right. Everybody has stupid ideas sometimes. Sometimes my wife has stupid ideas, sometimes I have stupid ideas, and I'm glad when we're, that we're able to converse about these things and question one another, all right? But with these books, you're not allowed to even, you're, you're instructed that the will of God is that you not even ask questions. So stop thinking, concubine. How about this one? Under the law of our land, today's woman is free to make decisions in opposition to her husband's leadership. It's my, these are the types of things that the modern woman says. It's my life, my body, my mind. What? <laughs> so the insinuation here is that you're not entitled to your life, your body, or your mind. Your life belongs to your husband. And you can say, okay, well, you're sharing a life together. I'll let that one slide. Your body belongs to your husband. Well, there's some truth there that the Bible does uh, talk about there in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which I'll discuss later. But what about this? Your mind belongs to your husband? Hold on. <laughs> You're not allowed to even think your own thoughts because your mind belongs to him? You're not allowed to even have contrary opinions? You're not allowed to voice those opinions, voice those concerns, or ask questions. That's called a robot, a concubine. 
In the concubine marriage, only the man matters. The concubine has no identity, and therefore the concubine has no value. Who is the concubine? Answer, who cares? She's a concubine, what, so what does it matter? Well, what's important to the concubine? Answer, who cares? <laughs> She's a concubine, so why does it matter? You see, a concubine has no identity of her own. She is simply to be a reflection of her master's image and conform to anything her master is or wants. Her value is not based on who she is, but rather on what she does. A concubine marriage, if you will, is a performance-based marriage. And you've heard me talk about identity-based Christianity versus performance-based Christianity in the past. Well, the same thing is true in this marriage. A concubine marriage is a performance-based marriage. And because everyone deep down in their soul intrinsically desires to be valued, the concubine's number one personal mission in life is to perform her heart out in hopes that her husband will someday recognize all that she's doing and value her accordingly. But until then, the advice that she's given by everybody is, well, you just need to do more and try harder. So what's the difference between the ideal Christian wife and the ideal concubine? Well, in my opinion, I believe it boils down to this word right here. The more I think about it, the more this word keeps coming up, and not even just in the context of marriage, but in Bible-believing circles especially, this word comes up, in my mind, as a big problem of something that's omitted quite a bit. A Christian wife is a woman who has value and is valued. A, a concubine is a woman who has no value and is not valued. Now, to be clear... In reality, a concubine really does have value. Every human being has value because God values the soul of every single human being. But society, as far as society is concerned, society perceives a concubine as having no value. And so consequently, no one values the concubine. Nobody cares what she thinks or what she wants. Okay, So perhaps a good way to put this would be this. A Christian concubine is a woman who actually does have value, but is not valued by her husband, maybe because he, his mentality is that she has no value. Or the other part of this, the flip side of the coin, is that she herself does not believe that she has any value. And so the woman perceives herself as a concubine. You see, and I'll get into this, but you see how much value that I perceive that you have depends on my personal perspectives. If I endeavor to look at you the way God looks at you, then I will value you for who you are and not for what you do. And naturally, my actions toward you are going to be consistent with my perception of your value. But if I have a perception of you that is skewed and is not consistent with God's perspective then I will probably assign value to you based on what you do. And naturally, my actions towards you 
are going to be consistent with my perception of your value. So in other words, if you're good to me and if you treat me good, well, your value goes up and I treat you better. But if you treat me bad and you aren't treating me very good, well, your value goes down and I treat you worse because uh, I perceive your value based on what you do, if that's my worldview, if that's my perspective. So you might say you're in the category of a Christian wife if you're valued for who you are. But you'd be in the more of the category of the Christian concubine if you're valued for what you do. Who you are never changes. And someone who loves you for you and loves you for who you are will never deviate in their love for you. They married you because they loved you for who you are. And who you are doesn't change, and so their love shouldn't change either. So what could be said to that to a woman in that relationship? Well, just be yourself, because he loves you for you. Uh, what you do, or how much you do, or how well you do it, can change, right? So someone who loves you and marries you because of what you do for him, or what you're able to do, well, that might someday change and uh what, you're, what you do might someday cease, or that person might cease to approve of your performance and consider leaving you, because what you do can change, if that's how he bases his love for you. So what could be said to this woman who's in a performance-based marriage? Because when you got married, yeah, your performance was way up there. But as you get older, or as reality sets in, you know, what if your performance isn't really up to his standard? He loved you up here, but what if you're down here? Or vice versa. Well, what would you tell that woman? Well, the message you would say is, well, you're going to have to do what he says and be the best you can be, because if you fail, he will likely divorce you. And that is essentially the message that is repeated to Christian women over and over and over throughout most of these Christian books that I've been reading on Christian wifery. It's the same message. You better get it right. You better do better because if you don't, he'll divorce you and your life will be miserable. So you might so yeah, you're miserable now, but it could be worse. Concubine, do more, try harder. And if you fail, it's your fault because you didn't do enough or try hard enough. Remember the maxim that I told you a while back that's repeated throughout performance-based Christianity? Do more, try harder, and never forget you suck. Concubine. <laughs> Three-point sermon outline of performance-based Christianity. Christian, do more, try harder, and never forget you suck. Because you don't want to get lifted up in pride. An identity-based relationship is a relationship of freedom and tends towards life. A performance-based relationship is a relationship of bondage and tends towards death. Wives live in freedom. Concubines live in bondage. And the Bible says where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And may I also say that identity-based relationships are a relationship of grace and freedom and life. Whereas performance-based relationships are all based on works and tend towards bondage and tends towards death and destruction and misery. All right, so let me ask you a few questions. I want to leave you with some questions at the end of these lessons. 
So <clears throat> if your relationship seems more along the lines of a concubine marriage, let me ask you, let me ask you this. Number one, is that because God doesn't value women and that's actually how God designed marriage to be? That's a question. Number two, if your relationship seems more like a concubine marriage, is it because your husband doesn't value you, demands performance from you, and his love for you is based on what you do as opposed to who you are? Now that is the case sometimes, and sometimes husbands are like that. And uh, that's unfortunate, and I'll try to get into that in these uh, subsequent lessons. Like, if that's the case, when a husband has a worldview that your value is based on your performance, okay, well, that that's not your fault, because you'll never uh, be able to basically be enough. <laughs> so that's a perspective that needs to change in your husband's heart, okay? But I'll get into some of that later. But actually, what I'm finding more often than not as I talk to different people, what I'm finding is, is that Christian wives actually have good Christian husbands who do genuinely love their wives for who they are. And so the woman <clears throat> can still, so, so the husband's not treating a woman like a concubine. She has a good Christian husband, and a lot of Christian women would acknowledge that. And yet they, these women still feel like they're in a concubine marriage. Why? Well, it could be because she doesn't value herself. She demands performance from herself, and her own estimation of herself is based on what she does as opposed to who she is. In other words, your husband isn't putting you in bondage, but rather you have inadvertently put yourself into a mindset of bondage because you were taught wrong. Now listen, I am not blaming you. A lot of these Christian books on Christian wifery, it's always your fault. I am not doing that. That's not what I'm getting at here. I'm simply trying to open your thinking to a possibility that maybe uh, you're, you know, you're just behaving how you were told a Christian wife is supposed to behave. And you've got this bar 50 miles up in the sky that seems completely impossible for you to ever attain to, but you keep trying and you keep trying and you keep failing and you keep failing. And so you, you feel like you're never good enough. It's never enough. But that's how you've been taught that a Christian wife is supposed to be, so that's what you keep doing. And so your mindset is not your fault. It's because you were taught wrong. And you're just trying to do and be what you were told God expects you to do and be. The thing is, you're not an idiot. You're not a failure. You were taught wrong. And that's not your fault, okay? Wrong instruction leads to wrong mentality, which leads to wrong actions, okay? You were taught wrong. That's not your fault. And the teachers who taught you were probably taught wrong themselves, okay? This actually goes way back. And so some of these books, you might recognize some of the authors of some of these quotes that I'm bringing up. And I'm not coming down hard on these authors as being some kind of wolves in sheep's clothing or false prophets, truthfully, these authors, these Christian women authors, they're really just trying to help Christian women and they're trying to uh, teach and instruct, you know, but they're simply perpetuating the mentality that they themselves were taught. 
and so on, and so on, and so on. And so everybody's just been perpetuating this false mentality that traces back to somewhere. But where do you think this backwards mentality came from? The backwards mentality is I have to do in order to be. The proper mentality is that it's about who you are. Identity-based, not performance-based. So where did this backward mentality begin? Well, let me tell you, let me leave you with one cryptic statement. This backward mentality came from the Bible, but it didn't come from God. What do I mean by that? <laughs> well, with that bizarre statement, I'll leave you to ponder these things, and I'll explain these things more in detail next time. Like I said at the beginning of the lesson, don't write me off as a heretic. Hear me out. What did I mean by that statement? This backwards mentality came from the Bible, but it didn't come from God. Well, think about that. Think, go ahead and think about that this week, and uh, we'll be back next week with another lesson. I hope you got something out of today's lesson. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to this YouTube ch channel. Share it with your friends and family. God's grace be with you. Have a good week.